friends, good morning. My name is Rob Sparks. I'm one of the pastors here at First Presbyterian Church, and I just want to welcome all of you to our service of worship, both those persons who came in person, but also those who are worshiping with us via live stream or are tuning in uh, later uh, on WSB. Uh, we would like to have a record of who attended this worship service, and so I encourage you to turn to page nine in your bulletin, and there's a QR code that you can use to check in with your phone. Um, you should get a prompt for your name. If you don't, it recognizes you, and you're done. Um, it also will, of course, have a link to a virtual order of worship so that you can keep up with what's going on in the life of the congregation this summer. Um, only a couple of announcements. One is uh, we will not be having godly play. They're going to take a little break, and so um, that will resume next week. And then the other is a prayer concern. Uh, just please keep uh, Marge Henson in your prayers. She lost her daughter, Gwen Sexton. Uh, she had surgery a couple of weeks ago and then complications that led to a stroke, and she died on Thursday, June 30th. Uh, the family's going to have a private service, memorial service, uh, later this month. But uh, for those of you that know Marge, she lost her son uh, a few years ago, so this has been particularly hard on her, so please keep that family in your prayers. Um, there are no other announcements, so let us worship God. Will you join with me in our call to worship that's printed in your bulletin? Sing praise to God, O faithful ones. Give thanks to God's holy name. Hear us, O God, be gracious to us. Our souls praise you, O Lord. Let us worship God.
say that we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is hidden from us. So let's stand before God uh, as we confess our sins together uh, and then silently on our own using the prayer of confession printed in the bulletin. Almighty and most merciful God, we acknowledge and confess that we have sinned in thought, word, and deed. We have not loved you with all our heart and soul, with all our minds and strength, and that we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We pray, O Lord, that you will forgive what we have been. Will you help us amend what we are and will direct what we shall be? so that the love of goodness may ever be first in our hearts, that we may walk in faith and obedience and follow in the footsteps of Jesus always. Yet even now, says the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, Rend your hearts and not your clothing. Return to the Lord your God, for God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from punishment. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Alleluia. Amen. reading today is from Galatians 2 verses oh, nope, not, uh, 11 to 21. Listen now for the word of God for you and for me. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood self-condemned. For until certain people came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But after they came, he drew back and kept himself separate for fear of the circumcision faction. And the other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray with their, their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is justified not by works of the law, but through the faith of Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the doing of works of the law, because no one will be justified by the works of the law. But if, in our effort to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. But... 
If I build up again the very things that I once tore down, then I demonstrate that I am a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the, uh, through, through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified, crucified with Christ, and it is no longer who I live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <coughs> Thank you, Kate. I'm really glad you read the scripture that I'm planning on preaching on. Otherwise, this sermon wouldn't make much sense. Well, let us turn to God in prayer. May the words of my lips and meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Have you ever had someone call you on something? It makes an impression. So much so that I still remember after 20 plus years when an elder pointed something out that I said a few times too often. We were in a stated session meeting and Vaughn said to me, Rob, do me a favor, would you? Would you stop? Would you please stop saying at First Presbyterian, they do it in such and such a way. Now, to put this in context, he was not talking about this First Presbyterian Church, but rather the First Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Georgia. You see, that session meeting that I was moderating was at the first church where I was led as a solo pastor, a little church called Morningside, not to be confused with the Morningside that's here in Atlanta, a few uh, neighborhoods over. Vaughn was right. When those session meetings at that Columbus morning side, I often said, at First Presbyterian, they do it like dot, dot, dot. And after he pointed it out, I curtailed the use of that phrase. I can't say I completely exercised it from my vocabulary, but when the urge uh, to say it came upon me, I would try to bite my tongue. Now, in my defense, I was merely referencing the only real frame of reference I had. No one in the academy talks about this, but seminary doesn't really teach seminarians how to run a church. The professors are too busy filling our heads with theology and ethics and church history and the Bible, granted all things that are very important for a pastor to know, but they don't really have time for the nitty-gritty of budget meetings and personnel meetings and all the other things that make a church go. Nobody so much as showed me a church balance sheet, or a statistical report in the entire time I was at Columbia Seminary. I had the <clears throat> great fortune, however, sorry, we're Presbyterian, let me rephrase that. It was providential that my first job out of seminary was as interim youth director at First Presbyterian Church of Columbus, Georgia. It was then pastored by the very capable Reverend Dr. John Bell. When he got me on staff, he said, look, I know we hired you to be the director for our youth and to work with their families, but you are seminary trained. You're just not ordained yet. So here's the deal. I want to put you in to do anything and everything around here that doesn't require ordination. And so he did. And one of the things that included was going to all of the committee meetings and all of the session meetings. And while it seemed like a little bigger 
scope of the job than I'd been hired to do, it truly was an amazing learning experience. And many of those lessons have followed me in my career as a pastor for the last two decades of ministry. Now, I bring this up because something similar is happening here in our text. Galatians, you'll remember, wasn't written to a particular congregation, but it was rather written to a constellation of churches in the region of Galatia in the highlands of what's now modern-day Turkey. From a couple of verses in chapter 4 in this same epistle, we know that the Galatians had been converted by Paul when he stayed with them when he was recovering from an unnamed illness. Luke's book of Acts doesn't mention Paul's illness, but it does tell us that he passed through that region multiple times. He's writing to his friends now, warning them that they are falling into false teachings. One of the major ones, one that Kate addressed last week, was whether a Gentile who converted to Christianity first needed to be circumcised. But it wasn't the only one. Paul, in the lesson that Kate just read to us, is recounting a time from earlier in his ministry when something similar happened, depending on when the epistle to the Galatians was written. Paul is telling them about a confrontation that he had with Peter nearly a decade or so ago. It was in Antioch. The book of Acts tells us about the start of the church there. Here, let me read it to you from chapter 11. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that took place over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, and they spoke the word to no one except Jews. But among them were some men of Cyprus and Cyrene who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, that is the Gentiles, also proclaiming the Lord Jesus. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number became believers and turned to the Lord. News of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he rejoiced, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast devotion, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for an entire year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. So this is right at the very beginning of the church. And I think it's telling that the Antiochian congregation, right from the start, was made up of both Jewish converts to Christianity but also Gentile converts. It's like diversity is just baked into the DNA of the church. But according to Paul, it almost went off the rails. When Peter, now in our letter this morning, Paul uses the nickname that Jesus gave him, which was Cephas, which is Aramaic for rock, because he's the rock on which the church will be built. When Cephas came to the fledgling church at Antioch, he was at first intermingling with both those Gentile converts as well as the Jewish converts. In fact, Paul says he was eating with them. But when some unnamed disciples come from James, the brother of Jesus, Peter stopped interacting with Gentiles. Now, even though it was Peter who had the vision that said Christians need not follow any dietary purity laws, most scholars agree, especially since Paul mentioned eating, the Jewish Christians 
in Antioch were still trying to keep kosher. Early Christians often ate together. They would have a worship service, and then they would have what they called an agape feast, an agape meal. It's really a potluck. But for those who were trying to remain kosher, they didn't want to accidentally contaminate their food with what their neighbors were eating. And so the solution was simple enough. Jewish Christians would sit at these tables. Gentile Christians would sit at these tables. Problem is, anyone who's ever eaten lunch in a middle school cafeteria knows what happens when you start having special tables for special people. You end up with a pecking order, or as what Chief Justice Earl Warren put, separate but equal is inherently unequal. What was beginning to happen was the beginning of this hierarchy, and those who could trace their ancestry back to Abraham and to Isaac were the ultimate cool kids, and they were pulling away from those who could not. Paul saw this. Paul recognized that this was wrong. Peter, the one on whom the church was going to be built, was in error. Not only that, he had also led Barnabas astray too. And so Paul called him on it. To his face, he writes. In front of the congregation, he tells us. You know, that must have stung for Peter. I empathize with him here, and I think that's why that old memory of that session meeting popped up. Now, I'm not going to reread all of Paul's argument that Kate just read to us, but to summarize, he said, if saying the proper prayers or keeping food purity laws or being born into a particular lineage led to salvation, then the death and resurrection of Jesus is meaningless. Well, of course, for us Christians, nothing could be further from the truth. And so here we are, years later, and it's been reported to Paul that the churches in Galatia are falling into the same church that, or trap that the church in Antioch did at the beginning. And so he's repeating to them what he said to Peter a decade or so earlier. Well, I'm happy to report the fact that many of us modern-day Christians will attend barbecues tomorrow where we will eat cheeseburgers, not kosher, or pork ribs, super not kosher, tells us that Peter and Barnabas heeded Paul's teaching, as did the church, churches in Galatia. Likewise, circumcision, wearing proper garments, growing your hair and beard to a certain length, wearing phylacteries, not driving on the Sabbath, reading of certain prayers, observing particular religious holidays, all are not required to be a Christian. Just faith that Jesus Christ is Lord. Or as the Reverend Dr. Holmes taught us in his Sunday school a few weeks ago, Christians are marked by their orthodoxy, that is, right belief, rather than their orthopraxis or right practices. Now, I wish that the divide between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians were the end of division in the church, but we humans have an insidious way of finding ways to split ourselves, don't we? The church even though it is the body of Christ, is still a human institution. And so the things that divide us pop up again and again. It's kind of like whack-a-mole. And so history has given us different churches, the Coptic Church, the Orthodox Church, the Roman Catholic Church, and in our corner, the Reformed Churches, which have split even further denominations, Methodists, Lutherans, Baptists, Presbyterians, and so on. And even internally, we've had our own divisions. Last week, when... Reverend Kate Culver preached, she spoke eloquently about her feelings of exclusion from our denomination, 
to Peace USA because of her God-made identity. It had a happy ending. She returned, and we're very, we celebrate with her for that. If you haven't heard her sermon, I encourage you, go find it online and listen to it. You see, that sermon was one that I personally needed to hear because I've lived life on the other side where I've always felt included. I identify with the Peter of the Antioch story because I've always been invited to sit at the table. Additionally, I probably occupy one of the most privileged seats in the history of the world. I'm an American. And as we celebrate our nation's birth tomorrow, one of the rights that I'll acknowledge is that I have the free exercise of religion. And I also believe that I was predestined to be a Presbyterian, so I got that going for me. I'm now what's called a cisgendered male. Look, I have to confess, I read that word a few times and had no idea what it meant. And so I finally had to Google it. I'm just out of touch with what's going on in academic circles regarding gender and identity. But it basically means that my, my biology and my identity lined up at birth, and so I've never felt any pressure from society to conform to be someone I'm not. I'm Caucasian. Oh, boy, am I ever. A few years ago, some of those genetic tests showed up in our uh, Christmas stockings. I was really hoping for something interesting. 100% European, Northwestern European at that. The three matched subgroups were British Isles, Germany, and France. Boring. Not only boring, but combined, those three are some of the, uh, the worst when it comes to the havoc of colonialism, so I'm sorry about that. And it's not just what the casual observer can see, but I grew up in a nuclear family um, with parents who loved one another. They were married for 49 years before my mother died. Uh, when I was little, my parents would take us to cultural things, plays and the symphony and museums and the like. My two brothers and I grew up in a house that was filled with books. Um, we had a, a big yard that we could play in. We had a nice neighborhood. A lot of my neighbors didn't even bother to lock their doors. Um, we had a good school that we could walk to. We never missed a meal, so no food insecurity. Sometimes I'm wondering if that was such a good thing. We played sports. We took regular vacations to the beach. Sometimes we would go to national parks. When college was talked about, it was always uh, when you go, not if you go. And, of course, we went to church every week. And so when I walked into the associate pastor's office at the church I joined after college, which was my grandparents' church, and said to Reverend Askew, told her that I was thinking about seminary and ordination, there was absolutely zero impediment to that happening. Now, as I mentioned, I've been ordained now for over two decades. And during that time, most of the church fights that I've witnessed or participated in were about marriage equality and the ordination of LGBTQ plus persons. And I have to confess that where I am now, from where I started is not the same. If I were a politician, you could call me a flip-flopper, I guess. But I'm glad I'm not a politician. I'm clergy. And I was allowed to study the issue and become convinced by some really, really smart people who know how to read the scriptures far better than I can. And I was able to change my mind, to have an evolution of opinion. And that's why I'm still part of the PCUSA today, 
and am proud to be so. And now, after two decades, I'm in this season of ministry where I've joined the staff here at first uh, about two and a half years ago now. And I'd like to share two things that happened when I first started. One of them was when Reverend Dr. Katie Sundermeyer gave me this book. I think you've probably seen it around. It's the This is the Church Being the Church by Reverend Dr. Harry Fifield. It's a short memoir of Dr. Fifield's ministry as senior pastor of this congregation. When you read it, you realize that the church has, in every season, been divided by something. I think back when Dr. Fifield was installed in this church, he, it was 1953. Only men could be pastors. Only men could serve on session. Um, the congregation was basically lily white. But he was here for nearly a quarter of a century. He retired in 1976. And he, probably more than any other senior pastor, saw more changes than other pastors in the history of this church. And here he recounts how Atlanta was becoming more cosmopolitan and the need for this congregation to think about being more hospitable to persons from abroad. And that included in starting the international Sunday school class. And he talks about the genesis of Atlanta's ministry to international students. He writes about the growing pains of Atlanta becoming a more metropolitan area and the rise of homelessness in the church's response, first with soup kitchen and then later with shelter. Uh, he shared about how he signed the minister's manifesto, a document that was printed in the Atlanta newspapers where he and other prominent clergy publicly supported the integration of Atlanta's public schools. He tells of the day that members of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee came to this church, right to this sanctuary, to kneel in. They were expecting to be barred from the door, as they were in most other churches, but they were kind of shocked to find out that they were told if they were peaceful, they could come and join worship. When the Ku Klux Klan dynamited the temple up the street, he blasted them from this very pulpit, garnering threats to himself. And then he and our church's session uh, invited that congregation, our Jewish brothers and sisters, to come worship here while their building was being repaired. He even writes about officiating the first interracial wedding here in 1973, right across the hall in the Windship Chapel. You know, it's funny, he does not mention when the first women joined the session, and I think the first women pastors came on staff after he retired, but there were women elders and ministers in our presbytery in the early 70s, and these are important milestones in the life of the wider church, mentioned or not, these are incredible stories of how at every juncture the church chose to be more inclusive, to open its arms and its doors to more and more and different people. See, the amazing thing is when Christians allow Jesus to reside in their hearts, I mean, truly reside in their hearts, they will recognize the God-createdness of their brothers and sisters no matter those differences. So the second thing that happened and I hesitate to tell this story. One day I pulled into a store, local store, and as I did so, I noticed the car in front of me had a Candler Theological Seminary bumper sticker on it. 
but there was also a faculty parking tag hanging from the rearview mirror. And ordinarily, I wouldn't have mentioned anything to this other driver. It's just that, well, I'll be honest, we were pulling into a package store. <laughs> so when the seminary professor got out of her car, I said, uh, I'm clergy too, and if anyone asks, we're going in here to get wine for the sacrament, okay? She laughed, and she asked me where I was serving. And as I said, this was, I just started here. I said, well, I was out in Gwinnett County, but I've just taken a new call at First Presbyterian Church. You might know it. It's the church next to the High Museum. And she paused for a moment, and she said, oh, I know that church. That church has a long history of promoting progressive causes and social justice. And here's the curious thing. I was struck in that moment with a feeling I can only call pride, which seems a little weird since I had absolutely nothing to do with what this church has done in the past. The fact that I had only recently become connected to it made me pleased, I guess, to be part of a congregation whose moral arc is bending towards justice, just to borrow a phrase. And I pray that my ministry here going forward may contribute to that enduring legacy. I think it's especially important in these days that those of us who have the insider's track be advocates for those who don't, those whom society wants to marginalize. Just last week, one justice on the Supreme Court in his concurring opinion to overturn Roe versus Wade suggested that the Supreme Court cases that granted marriage equality should be revisited. Likewise, several state legislatures are in the process of passing legislation that appears to specifically target persons in the LGBTQ plus community. And the church isn't done either. I will always, always have a soft spot in my heart for the church that took such a green, ignorant seminarian and helped mold him into a future pastor. But I'm going to defy what I swore I wouldn't do to that elder at Morningside. And I'm going to tell you what they did at First Presbyterian Church of Columbus. As our denomination continue to argue about the ordination standards and marriage equality, a vocal group within that congregation suggested that it was time for that church to leave the PCUSA. Good Presbyterian fashion, a motion was proposed and a congregational meeting was held. Now, if you know your polity, to leave a denomination, you've got to have a supermajority vote to leave. And they fell short by just a handful of votes. So the church officially did not leave. The First Presbyterian Church of Columbus is officially still a member congregation of the PCUSA, but it is a shadow of its former self. Less than 400 members now. There were over 1,100 when I was there. Meanwhile, the persons who voted for exclusion and failed then voted with their feet, and they proceeded to move a couple of miles up the road and start a new congregation in a different Presbyterian denomination, one that's not inclusive. And they now call themselves, I think ironically, Grace Presbyterian. 
it breaks my heart. For I know that the Apostle Paul would be crestfallen to see modern Christians falling into the same purity traps that the Antiochians and Galatians fell into. But I also know he'd be heartened that some of the followers of Christ live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for all. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God, one in three, three in one, maker of all things seen and unseen, we offer thanks to you for this day, this day that you have made. We are living in it fully with love and in grief and hope. We are thankful that you are a part of this day with us. You set the sun to brighten the day and the moon and the stars to illumine the night. You lead us by the light of your truth to the ways of righteousness and peace. You are holy, O God of every nation, and blessed is Jesus Christ, your Son. We give you thanks that you love the world so much that you gave your only Son to redeem and heal our brokenness. In his face, we glimpse your glory. In his life, we see your love. In his resurrection, we behold the promise of eternal light. We offer gratitude for the abundance of the earth. The wonders of nature take us unaware, and we raise our voices to you. We are surrounded by the beauty of creation. Help us in our gratitude not take this abundance and beauty for granted. Help us seek to make this earth a good and safe home for all your children. We confess that despite abundance, many of your children live in poverty and want. We know through your words, through the prophets and the apostles, this is neither your will nor your purpose. In a world with so much division, help us unite in our truth instead of our differences. Sustain us with your gift of hope as we work to do your will so that all people might share in the goodness of your creation. We bring you our own personal concerns for ourselves, our families, and our communities. In all these things, we ask for the strength to face the hard realities of our world, to not despair, but to stand with the vulnerable, the victims of violence and injustice, and those who live on the margins. May we be transformed and offer our thanks to you for all your good gifts and for inviting us to be good stewards, our hands, our hearts, our lives, our gifts offered to you, praying the prayer you taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. We all have ways of using our hearts and our hands uh, and our offerings to serve the church. And I invite you now, if you feel compelled, to use the QR code on uh, the pay on right in your order of worship to uh, give to the church. And uh, yeah, these are our offerings.
Let us pray. Holy God, to the work of this church, which is weaving a tapestry of love and community, we dedicate our lives, and these are our offerings. Amen. we have for one another is but a reflection of God's love for us, for all of God's children. Let us not fall back into the ways of the Antiochians or the Galatians and divide one another. Let us open our doors, our arms, and our hearts to all out there who need to know the love of Jesus. So go out into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Return no one evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. Honor all people. Love and serve the Lord, rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the power of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forever. Alleluia. Amen.